Mrs. Moeller, who was accused of killing her third husband. And the lawyer asks her, so Mrs. Moeller, could you please explain to the jury how your first husband died? And she said very plainly, he died from mushroom poisoning. I see, said the lawyer. So Mrs. Moeller, could you please explain to us also how your second husband died? And she said, rather frankly, he too died of mushroom poisoning. And she said, I see, and, and Mrs. Moeller, for the record, could you please explain how your third husband died? And she said, yes, very tragically, he died of a brain concussion. And the, and the lawyer interrogated and pressed further, and he said, and how did that happen? And she said and confessed, he wouldn't eat the mushrooms. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think we can get caught in habits, and these habits are hard to break. And these habits, if they're not habits, they're just simply a wrong way of dealing with problems. Okay, so, uh, yeah, we may not kill our husbands because every time we get into an argument with him, okay, yeah. However, we can find ourselves responding in a very typical, habitual way. When people hurt us, we hurt them back. And this can become a, ver a very deep-rooted pattern in our lives that I believe Jesus wants to be able to set us free. You know, I have, I've heard it said when I was growing up, and I, I use this maybe when you were a kid, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, you would say this too. He's, when someone insults us, oh yeah, well I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Did, did anybody ever say that when they were a kid? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, even some of you young people, wow. So it wasn't just me when I was in elementary school. Or we say, you've heard this, when all of us, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That is a lie. Just, so the, just for the record, that is a lie. Words can hurt us. And I'm going to venture to say this, that just about every single one of us, through the course of our life, and for some of us, that's like a long course, 55 years, there's been a lot of hurts, an accumulation perhaps of hurts. And the honest truth is we weren't the rubber, we were the glue, right? And they found their mark, and we tried to play it off, and especially us guys were tough, and that didn't hurt me, and it did, and it wounded us. We tried to get over it. But now, as we're going through this series in the presence of my enemies, we are challenged with this command, love your enemies. And in all honesty, Jesus' command, love your enemies, for some, is like telling us as cripples to walk. Because revenge has, for us, become a knee-jerk reaction. That's just who we are. You hurt me, I hurt you. Growing up, I was an angry little boy. I didn't know why. I got in so many fights on the playground. And you've heard my story. I, I, I was sent to the principal's office so many times. I knew him by the first name. I had a coffee mug with my name in his office, okay? We were like this. I visited him. We were pals. It, it seemed that way anyway, perhaps. But I was always getting into fights on the playground. Now, I got a, when I, got promoted out of sixth grade, and I don't know how that happened, but I managed to get beyond the sixth grade. <laughs> Into the seventh grade, things kind of changed, but up until sixth grade, I was getting in fights all the time. I remember one incident when I was in fifth grade, and it really caught my attention. And here I was, this guy, he, we were playing uh, soccer, and he grabbed the pole, and he swung around it, and he hit me in the face with his fist. Now, I can't remember why he did that. I don't even think I was the one who scored the goal. But regardless, he, he clocked me with his fist. And I just thought to myself, this guy is going down. And I remember taking him down. And I put my knee into his face over and over and over. And I asked, are you going to give up? No. And I said, okay, boom, boom, boom. Are you going to give up? Nope. And this guy was stubborn. 
You're going you're gonna to give up at some point. And finally he said, okay. And when he got up, his face was completely covered with blood. I, I, I was horror-stricken. I'd not seen that much blood before in my life. And it was all over his face. And I realized there is something wrong in here. But I didn't change after that. And in sixth grade, I met more than my match. And this new kid who came to school did almost the same thing. We were playing soccer, and something happened. And he ticked me off and said, I got to show him who's boss on this playground. And so I tried to take him down, and I went down. <laughs> and he, 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 he took care of business. And I realized, okay, that's one guy you don't want to mess with. <laughs> but I was angry. Now, when I, there was no recess in seventh grade. That's middle school for me. No recess. Hated that. You know what I mean, no recess. So instead of fights, I got into physical fights. I got into verbal fights. But there was still something wrong in here. There was something wrong in my heart. You know, when I would go to church, honestly, I, I tried to play sick as many times as I could, so I didn't. My mom would stay home and read the Bible to me regardless. But for me, I, I was constantly hearing, love your enemies, love your enemies. And my mom was the sweetest, shyest, but sweetest lady you would ever want to meet. Until I met my wife, of course. But my mom, just she loved God and she loved people. And I could see love your enemies in her. Maybe not so much so with my dad. He was a different person. But I was challenged, love your enemies. And I realized that I could not love my enemies. And I'm going to give you a little illustration this morning. That probably made a lot of noise on the microphone. But I have with me here, and this is the worst of our cookie sheets. Maybe my wife is presently embarrassed. I can't believe you're showing the church this. But the truth is, we have many more that look a lot better than this. I had to choose the worst one to make my point. So, sweetie, forgive me. But this is aluminum, if I'm not mistaken. And you have to coat this thing thoroughly. If you're making cookies, you have to coat it thick, probably an inch or two of grease, of oils, okay? You know, Pam spraying it. You're, you're like, for two hours spraying this thing. Okay, now I can put the, the cookies on it. And guess what? The cookies don't stick. But here's what I've discovered. Yes, I've made a few cookies in my life. You spray it so thick that finally the cookies don't stick. But guess what? It gets so hot in that oven that all of the oil all around the edges, then that sticks to the, to the cookie sheet. And I'm just thinking, you can't win for losing. But this is not a pan <laughs> that you want to use for much else because... Just like everything sticks to it. It's made of aluminum. This was like me growing up. Every hurt that I received, it stuck to me. Everything. And I found it very difficult when Jesus, I heard that command, love your enemies. It was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I bore a lot of hurts. And I've come to realize, and, and this is our Teflon pan, and has nothing to do with the joke that I told last week about a pan, by the way. But this is a Teflon pan. And here's the thing I love about Teflon pans. Nothing sticks to it. I love it. Unless, of course, if you choose to use a metal spatula and you gouge it. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But it, plastic spatulas, it's, they're awesome. I love them. Everything should be made of Teflon. Man, these things need to be made of Teflon. Everything needs to be made of Teflon. And here's the truth I've realized. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to be made of Teflon. Now, do you follow me? And so when I am hurt, I am able to be like that rubber, if you will. I'm able to be like that Teflon in which that hurt does not stay with me. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to see a gentleman <coughs> and in this story, I'm going to use it as a springboard into this, this conversation that we need to have concerning hate and, and how do we truly love our enemies and not hate them. And what I discovered is that I was, I was a lot like this gentleman in the story. I was like that pan, everything stuck to it. And I'm going to imagine that that's what happened here for this gentleman. Everything 
every hurt stuck to him and it wounded him. And he was filled with bitterness. I'm going to start here in verse 18. The gentleman's name is Simon, and he's actually introduced to us as Simon the Sorcerer. Now, he's called Simon the Sorcerer because, <coughs> excuse me, because Simon had posed himself to the people of Samaria as a god, the god. That actually, and, and we find this later in Irenaeus, who lived and wrote around 180 AD, that uh, Simon, sometimes called Simon Magus or Simon the Magician, kind of a poor translation, at least in our day, and it's better Simon the Sorcerer because he was totally and completely involved in the occult, thinking that he himself was God, and then and, and tried to pose himself as the God who had now come to the earth just as Jesus had. And, and Philip, who has been completely transformed by the gospel, was actually one of the leaders in Jerusalem. We read about that in, in Acts chapter 6 here in 8. He's now going around and he is evangelizing and he's telling the Samaritans about how they could be saved. And demons are cast out. People are healed. Paralytics are walking. He's preaching the gospel. Many of them start turning to Jesus Christ and surrendering their hearts to him, believing in Jesus. And they start following Jesus in this causes a major shift in Simon the Sorcerer's followers. Many of them, many of them leave and they start following the Jesus that Philip is preaching. Even to the point where, at least on the surface, Simon the Sorcerer says, oh, I believe. I would say about a week later, Peter and John come to Samaria and they lay hands on those who have been baptized and received Christ. And they receive in power the Holy Spirit. And Simon the sorcerer sees this happening. And I'm going to put it this way. On the surface, and he was even baptized on the surface, he appeared to be a Christian. But when we, we, we read this story and we know what's truly in his heart. So starting with verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was giving at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to suggest to you that there was something very objective and visible that was happening here. We'll call it a manifestation of the Spirit, and that this manifestation is what Simon saw. And as the apostles laid hands on them, very possibly people began to speak in tongues or prophesy. It's not clear, it's not specific, but it does say Simon saw something, and that something was when they received the Spirit, there was a manifestation. And he thought to himself, I want this power. Because you see, there was for Simon, he was all about this lust and desire for power. And, and Luke continues to tell the story in verse 20. Peter answered, it says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Now listen to this. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now I'm going to suggest that his response is more out of fear than true repentance. I mentioned Irenaeus. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, speaks actually a number, Ignatius and uh, Justin Martyr, who before Irenaeus speak of Simon the sorcerer. But Irenaeus in his book Against Prophecies makes it very clear before he lists in detail the various cults and, and heresies that had sprung up from the time of, uh, of the apostles to his present day, he begins with Simon 
the sorcerer or Simon Magus. And he says this man was a son of the devil and that all heresies and all cults flow from him. Um, apparently there was a tradition that says there was actually a duel between Simon the sorcerer and Peter uh, before Nero. And I, I'm not going to get into that story. We don't know the, the degree to which it's true. But Simon the sorcerer's heart did not change. It never changed. He continued propagating that he was the God who had come to the earth. And he deceived many. It says here that Peter's challenge as he was able to supernaturally look into Simon's heart, he, it says he saw that he was full of bitterness. Now, that's the NIV's translation. If you have the NASB, it reads a little differently, a little bit more uh, literally, and it says you are in the gall of bitterness. Now, there's one thing of being in something, like you step in something. Uh, there's another, this word, however, is not the word in, it's the word into. You get this impression more of this sense of immersion. Now, I'm bringing this to your attention because this, this, the NASB says you are in the gall of bitterness. Do you know what gall is? Gall is a liquid, very pungent and very bitter. You do not want to drink it. And if you do, it's got to be way, way watered down. It can actually act as a narcotic to help kill pain. Let me now translate this phrase into our vernacular. It would read something like this. I see in your heart that you are steeped in the cesspool of bitterness. See, that's the idea of gall. It's this bitter liquid. And it's obviously used metaphorically here because he's not talking about a liquid. He's talking about what? Bitterness. And he says, you are in this cesspool of bitterness. And you are captive. You're in the bonds or bondage of sin. Can I confess to you, yeah, that is exactly where I was growing up. When I, became, when I turned 14 and I gave my heart to Christ, God, <coughs> excuse me, God began to change that in me. Praise God. But there was still some of this cesspool of bitterness in me, and it really worked against me. I wanted so much for God to free me of this. I wanted to be his witness, and when I turned 16, God brought even greater freedom but after I turned 16 and God was opening up opportunities to evangelize and he used me, I, this is awesome, I began to realize some of that stuff is still there. God, please root this out. This is Again, this is the cesspool of bitterness. And even as Christians, though we may not have the heart that Simon the sorcerer had, we can still have this cesspool remnants of bitterness still on us that God needs to completely wash us of and free us from. Matthew 12, 34 says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what that says to me is that when, <coughs> when people would insult me, say something negative or do something negative towards me and it stirred up my anger, I realized that what I then said or did was the result of something that was in my heart. And I want us to look at that because the challenge is love your enemies. And if I am caught up in anger or bitterness, how can I love my enemies? It is going to be beyond me. It's going to be like telling a cripple to walk. This is so crucial. God does not want us in or into, immersed in this cesspool of bitterness and, our, and, and, and hurts, but he wants us to be healed of these hurts so that we can be that man, that woman that truly loves their enemy, that Teflon, if you will. 
So I want you now, let's, let's spend the remainder of our time in Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians chapter 4, and by the way, my life group uh, took the opportunity and, and looked at this passage. I understand there were the, the life groups as we studied what Proverbs has to say concerning anger, a lot of good discussions resulted. Excellent. Anger is something that we all wrestle with that we all wrestle with. I, I, I would ask, how many of you don't wrestle with anger? And if you raise your hand, I would have to call you out as a liar. That's the honest truth, okay? We all wrestle with anger. Talk to you later. We all wrestle with anger. We do, in varying degrees. And we had to look at, you know, there is a righteous anger. <laughs> but more often than not, we color our anger with Righteous indignation. We, we, we avoid, you know, oh, no, 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 that's not sinful anger. That's justified anger. And truly, church, we're always wanting to justify our anger, are we not? Even when our anger hurts. Well, I, I had to. I had to say it that way. I had to defend myself. I had to do that to you. No, we didn't. And God is needing to do something in here because it's, it's, it's what's in here that overflows and comes out of my mouth. And if insults and excessive sarcasm comes out of my mouth, it is only because there's something in here that God needs to deal with. And so I, I always encourage people who are dealing with anger, use anger now as a red flag. That red flag, if you're feeling that anger, yes, we want to hold our tongue, but we need to ask, why is that anger there? And many times it's an unjustified anger and it needs to remind us now of what we're about to look at. So if you're after today and you're sensing that anger well up, okay, I got to go back to Ephesians 4. What does it say again? And let's go over it. We're going to find some truth here that I believe can really minister healing to you. We're going to start in verse 29. And we're going to read all the way through verse 32. Ephesians 4 chapter, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. What we see here is Paul's challenge to put a filter over our mouths so that only what is helpful for building others up comes out. Do you see that? But our tendency is to be more reactionary. We call it a knee-jerk reaction. A knee-jerk, you know what a knee-jerk reaction is? A, a knee-jerk reaction is not something that you have thought through. Uh, physiologically, if you were to cross your legs and hit your knee, hit your knee so that your knee jerks that we call that a that's where it comes from a knee-jerk reaction my understanding if i believe it's correct is that the nerve impulse does not go travel it does not go to my spine travel up to my brain and then i process it and then do something about it what happens is because it's a reflex that nerve sends the impulse to my spine and it sends back the impulse to jerk the knee now, let me relate that to our everyday life. When things happen, we are so used to reacting or responding a certain way, we don't even think about it. We don't process it. And that's what I'm saying. We need to, it, 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 after we go through the, the, the truths here found in Ephesians 4, and we continue to wrestle with anger, then <laughs> that anger needs to be a red flag, and we need to say, stop, think about this. What are you about to do? And why are you so filled with anger or bitterness, rage? Why? 
Think about this. Because you're going to want to have a knee-jerk reaction. But the knee-jerk reaction is unwholesome words. There are hurts in our heart. They're not resolved. We're going to get to that in a moment. But the result is that when we are hurt, knee-jerk reaction, unwholesome words, you insult me, I'm going to now have to top you and insult you even worse. And that is how we think. That's how we respond in those situations. We shouldn't. But we are finding it difficult. Jesus, what do you mean love your enemies? And in this, he says, actually, by speaking words that, but listen to this, by speaking words that benefit people, excuse me, by speaking words that build them up, it says we actually benefit them. That word benefit, if you were to go to the Greek, is this word, and you're probably familiar with it. It's charis. It's grace. You are actually imparting grace to them. Now, granted, it's God's grace. And you remember what grace is. Everything that God has that we do not but desperately need. And what is it at that moment? Whatever the need is, we're needing that grace or that benefit to overcome. And by speaking words that build up, we have empowered them to rely on God's grace, and therefore we are in the process of being set free. Do you follow? This is the power of wholesome words that minister and to people and benefit them according to their needs. And so I'm going to challenge you, especially husbands and wives, if you are speaking words to one another that do not benefit but put down hurt then you need to come to this passage and you need to memorize it, yes, but you need to say, okay, God, then deal with my heart because there's something in me that wants to respond and say, oh, yeah, well, how about this? You take that. And God needs to do something here. And it, go, it goes on and it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And every single one of you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit for that day of redemption, that is that day in which we are fully redeemed. We're redeemed right now, but there's a day coming in which we will be fully redeemed, fully transformed. Remember, it, it says you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus redeemed you and bought you, he washed away your sins. And eventually, so this concept of purchase or redemption includes in its scope the concept of forgiveness of our sins. And so that day is coming in which sin and the curse will be completely lifted. We will be set free from that curse, set free from the power of sin and the presence of sin and the, and the penalty of sin. And we will be able to walk in complete holiness. That is the day of redemption. And we have been sealed for that day. But this seal, the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that he is quenched when we do not allow him to operate in us. Specifically, the context there is prophecy. And he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit, but test prophecies. Don't just say, no, we're not going to listen to that. No, and, and, and stifle what the Spirit is trying to speak. Don't quench the Spirit. But here, the word is grieve. And the word grieve is associated when to, with this idea of us sinning and allowing the devil a foothold in our lives as a result. Which, by the way, is a passage in verse 26. In your anger, don't sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. And so... We need to realize that we are giving the enemy a foothold. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, get rid of all your anger and bitterness. Now, <laughs> when I was a kid, I did not get rid of my anger. Unless, of course, you think that punching my brother in the face was getting rid of my anger. And I have to confess now, no, it really didn't get rid of anything. If anything, it stirred it up so that I tried to do it again. And I had to do it quickly, otherwise he would block the second punch. But the truth is, 
I, I did not get rid of my anger. Actually, I played the fool. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his anger. I gave full vent to my anger. On the other hand, we don't want to make this, the mistake of suppressing our anger and not even dealing with it. Because many times that anger, we stuff it, we kind of sweep it under the carpet, pretend it's not there. But I'm going to tell you right now that if you're doing that, you're eventually going to find this huge lump in your carpet wondering what it is. And it's going to come out and it ain't going to be pretty. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we, 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 we try to... to not we try to dismiss these hurts and dismiss them and dismiss them and then finally we erupt like a volcano and we wonder whoa where did that come from well it came from the fact that you didn't deal with these hurts so how do we scripture says get rid of your anger now can I be honest with you? If there was a period there and there were no other verses and Paul switched the topic, I would probably get angry. <laughs> I would because I'm thinking, okay, I'm supposed to get rid of my anger. But how do I do that, Paul? I am like caught in this anger right now and I'm seeing red and I've got one thing on my mind and it's not nice. How do I deal with that? Paul does tell us. He does tell the Ephesians and he gives them this truth. <coughs> and he says there in the last verse, verse 32, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Let me just tell you a little bit about how Paul purposely constructs this verse. And I think that will give us a clue and an idea how we need to understand this. The main verb is be. It's a command. Be followed by the adjective kind and the adjective, at least in my translation, compassionate. So be kind, be compassionate. This word that follows, and I think it's in most, if not all translations, is the word forgiving. Now, if you remember your English grammar rules, we call this a participle. And if you remember what a participle does, a participle modifies the main verb. Just like in Matthew 28, where it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them whatever I've commanded you. The main verb is make disciples, but there are three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching. And they describe for us how you make disciples. So this forgiving describes for us how to be kind and compassionate. And I would even go so far as to say, this is the power that drives this engine. This is how you're gonna be able to do it. Be kind and compassionate. I'm only seeing red. So how do I do that? How am I to be kind and compassionate? Here we go. Forgive. Forgive. That's gotta be the starting place. It has to be. But not just forgive, but forgive just as God forgave us through Christ, through his death on the cross, who, by the way, willingly died on the cross. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't plan B. It was the very heart and intention of Jesus when he came to this earth to go to that cross and die for you and me. But how do I forgive when I'm filled with bitterness? These are like polar opposites. And yet Paul is telling us the antidote to your anger and your bitterness and your rage and this thing that flies in the face of love your enemies is forgiveness. Two things that we need to see about forgiveness here. Number one, Paul needs us to remember, think about that word, remember that you have been forgiven. Because this forgiveness is your power that it's from God, it's his grace that's going to empower you to forgive. And it, it just the reminder of what Christ has done, that empowers us to forgive. When we remember 
his forgiveness. We remember he washed all of our sins away. He didn't just wash some of them away. He washed all of them away. There is no shame that remains. There is no guilt that stays. Unless, of course, the enemy has us bite into his lie that somehow God's forgiveness fell short. The truth, that's what we're speaking here this morning, right? The truth is that it, there is no limit to his forgiveness. Every sin forgiven, there should be no shame, there should be no guilt that remains. It, it, it's, it's also true that God holds no grudges against you. God does not have an offense with you. He's not up there with his arms folded and his brow scowled and he's thinking, man, when will that Mike Curtis guy ever get his act together? You know, I'm kind of waiting here. That is not his attitude. His attitude, as Zephaniah tells us, is that he rejoices over us with singing. That is how vast his love is. He holds no grudges against us. We were his enemies, Colossians 1 says. We were his enemies. Romans tells us that even though we were his enemies, he died for us. We were reconciled by his body, his death on the cross. No grudges. We have now a right relationship with God. Our heart is right. That was, that was Simon's problem. His heart was not right. Apparently, he said he believed he was baptized to kind of go, well, I mean, everybody else is doing it. I should probably do it. And can I encourage you that if you were ever swept up in this conversion uh, thing that, that you, you, you chose to believe in Jesus because everybody else was doing it, you have got to make this decision that you're going to follow Jesus because that is what's in your heart, not what's in other people's hearts. Until I was 14, I was, I was flying on the coattails of my mom and dad. They were, they were Christians. They, they went to church. My dad was a choir director. My mom led Bible studies, et cetera. I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, why shouldn't I? But I remained unconverted. My heart was not right with God, and neither was Simon's. His heart wasn't right with God. He did it because everybody else was doing it. But when we reflect on what Christ has done, the cross changes us. Our motto, transformed by the power of the, of the cross, or transforming lives by the power of the cross. Because our hearts are now right with God. <laughs> The cross is also a demonstration of his love for me. Anger seeks to hurt and love is the exact opposite. And so when we're reminded of what Christ has done for us and the forgiveness that we have, we realize that that was the most awesome demonstration of God's love. You see, the point is this, that if God truly loved us, shouldn't we do this for others? And in the previous verses in chapter 3, he says, I want you, here's my prayer for you, I want you to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. We are invited to do something that is truly beyond our ability, but we need to continue on this journey to understand the vastness of God's love for us. I don't care if you've gone to seminary and gotten your master's degree or went on to get your doctorate in biblical studies, you are going to find that this concept and this love of God is a forever process of grasping. We continue to grow and learn more about it and the depth of its riches. And so... Being immersed, as Paul says, in this knowledge of his love, it empowers us to love just like that. There is something amazing <coughs> when, 
when the love of Christ is birthed in our heart. And the only way we do that is to contemplate its vastness. That's how God's love changes us. It's a truth that, that, that gets like a seed in our heart and it's planted and it grows and it produces fruit. And you have to meditate on his love and the truth and the vastness of that love. And it changes us and it starts pushing out and displacing these hurts and the anger. And it empowers us to be able to forgive. And so number one, we need to realize that we are called here, implicitly anyway, we are called to remember God's amazing grace and love that he demonstrated on the cross and forgave us. And so I want to ask you, do you know this love? Do you know this love that Christ has for you? Has it changed your life? I'm going to challenge you that if it, if it has changed your life, the way for you to be transformed in this process to be able to love your enemies rather than hate them has got to be an immersion in this truth of God's love for you. Sins washed away. Never to be remembered again. God holds nothing against you. And that now brings me to my second point because Paul tells them, he says, you know what? Just like God forgave you, that's how you need to forgive. Now let's understand <coughs> that there are certain elements of God's forgiveness that are not transferable to me. They're not transferable to you either. <coughs> that shouldn't be news to you. There's much about God that we're challenged to emulate, but certain things we can't like his omnipresence. Any among you who have tried being omnipresent before? It, it, it doesn't work. Uh, how about um, omnipotent? Any of you have tried, some of you pretty close, but not quite, okay? <laughs> or um, omnipresent? Um, anyways, the, the reality is that there are certain things about God that aren't transferable. How about this? This aspect of God's forgiveness that we can't do God's forgiveness washes away sin. Not just in God's mind, but it, it's an, it actually happens. And it impacts your life. Your sins are washed away. Many, when they come to Christ, their testimony is it was as if this heavy burden of guilt and shame, sin, was lifted from my shoulders. That is the power of God's forgiveness. It, it, it's, it's, it's got substance to it. So it's not just this idea in God's mind. You can't wash away someone's sin. Maybe in your mind you can, but you can't wash away someone's sin. That belongs only to God. And so what we realize then is that God's forgiveness changes my heart and so here, I, i'm going to just share two quick things this is still point number one two things under this don't wait for the person to ask for forgiveness now god only forgives those sins that the person asks forgiveness for that the person repents of and i'm going to challenge you you see that is that part of forgiveness that belongs only to god he forgives only those whose hearts are repentant. Now, in Matthew 18, Jesus, excuse me, Peter comes to Jesus, hey, with this guy repents, if he tells me I'm sorry uh, seven times, am I okay to forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, uh, nope. Actually, Peter, you need to forgive 70 times seven. Now, he's not trying to say, if you do the math right, okay, well, once you hit 490 apologies, you're done, buddy. You're now on my blacklist, and I can now hate you. That's not what Jesus' point is. His point is, your forgiveness should never end. But I'm, I'm challenging you, don't just wait for them to apologize to forgive. See, that's the difference here. God challenges us to forgive regardless. I've actually heard some theologians say, don't forgive people unless they apologize to you. But that's understanding forgiveness from God's perspective. Because when God forgives us, he doesn't do it for himself. He doesn't forgive us. Oh, man, now I feel so much better. Whew, glad I got that off. You're forgiven. I feel, I feel good today. No, it, God forgives us 
he forgives you for you. He doesn't forgive you for himself. He forgives you for you. Your sins need to be washed away. But you see, we forgive people. Listen to this. We forgive others for us. You, you follow that? Now, if someone apologizes and I forgive them, I do believe that that helps them. That helps them realize, okay, I'm, you know, my, my Curtis is not holding anything against me. Whew, good, I'm so glad. That might help them. But I don't wait for that apology. I forgive them regardless. Not for them, for me. I need to. I can't hold on to this thing. It, it will burn you. It, it, it will allow you to, to step in that cesspool of bitterness, and I don't want that. It, it will begin to strangle the life out of you. That is the power of bitterness when we choose not to forgive. I'm going to challenge you. Don't wait for the person to come to you because forgiveness Unlike God's forgiveness, forgiveness is for you. You need to forgive. But here's where it is similar. Here's where it is transferable. And it gets at the heart of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. It's a canceling of a debt. It's not an emotion. You don't feel like you've forgiven or not. It is a truth, it is a fact, a reality. You hold nothing against them. You do not even demand an apology, though that would be most beneficial for them. And, and, and honestly, for someone to apologize, and I always trained my children, you need to apologize. You need to get this right because that helps heal and mend relationships. However, <laughs> for me to forgive means you owe me nothing. I'm not going to wait here for you to apologize. I'm going to take the, and, and by that, I don't mean that you need to go to the person and say, hey, oh, by the way, I have forgiven you. Yeah, don't do, don't do that. And I, I would encourage you, go to the person, Matthew 18, keep it between the two of you and share them the, with the person's fault, or at least ask them, hey, when you said this, it hurt me. Why or what did you mean? Seek reconciliation there. But for me to forgive means I am canceling their debt. Isn't that what Jesus did for you? Isn't that what God did through the cross that when we ask him to forgive us, that debt that we owed was completely canceled? It wasn't just like most of it. At the end of my life, I do not need to have last rites set over me because that teaching assumes an accumulation of offenses that need to be forgiven. And that's not the case. When Christ died on the cross, he died for all of my sins because they were all in the future. And when I gave my heart to Christ, the sins that I would commit the next day or the next week or the next year or the next decade were still under the blood of Christ and they were forgiven. However, for me to go to God today and say, God, I'm so sorry for how I said what I did and that was out of anger and that was wrong, forgive me. I don't do that so that I'm going to go to heaven. I do that because I need my heart to get right with God. And I've sinned against you and you only. We need to cancel this debt that that person has accrued. We might want them to be punished. We might want them to suffer. We might delight in their downfall, which, by the way, Proverbs says, don't do that. Don't delight in the downfall of your enemy. We might want something bad to happen to them, but this debt that I am canceling means I lay that down. I yielded all my rights. I have none. Their debt with me, it's, it's, it's gone. In essence, I am trying to be like this pan of Teflon. And if my heart is one that is filled constantly with forgiveness, I will be able to 
be kind and be compassionate because I am constantly forgiving and actions of kindness and compassion will flow as a result because it flows from what's in my heart. And I need to be like this Teflon. And the truth is, too many of us are like the pan and it's like everything, including the oil, sticks to it. And so here's my question to you. If you were to write down on a piece of paper, and if you do this, just make sure others don't see it, but if you were to write down, just in the last year, the people who have done things or said things that offended you, how long would that list go? Now, I am not suggesting that you'd be super hyper-spiritual at this point and say, oh, nobody has offended me. No one has hurt me in any way. Uh, uh, come on. We hurt one another. We say things that hurt one another. If the issue is not whether we get hurt or not, but what we do with the hurt. Do you forgive or do you not? That's my point here. So if you were to write down that list and be honest and not hyper-spiritual about this, and you begin to accrue this list, my question is not how long is the list, but what are you doing about the list? David had a litany of offenses that Saul had against him, and we're going to soon look at his life for, for uh, in, in this idea of loving our enemies and how he did it and what he learned and so on, but that list was a long list. But David never sought revenge on King Saul, ever, because he had dealt with that list in his heart. So as you make this list, I want you to look at that list one by one and ask yourself this question, what have I done about this offense here? Do I still hold a grudge? Do I still hold it over their head? Do I every now and then mention something to me as if you owe me one? Have I truly forgiven them? Canceled their debt completely? The knowledge of God's forgiveness empowers us to truly forgive and cancel out these debts. So the bitterness will not fester in my heart. You remember my story about Frank. The thing that so touched my heart was that in a process, a course of about one year, as he and I would maybe talk uh, probably a couple of times a week in depth, maybe once a week, his heart was beginning to soften. He wasn't quite as crusty. And, and I mean, he, he was that salty, salty sailor, okay? And if a sentence didn't have a cuss word in it, that means he made a mistake, okay? It, that was just part of his language. And over time, the cuss words got fewer and fewer. And he, I remember one day he came into work and, and he saw me sitting down and he said, Mike, I read my Bible for the first time in 15 years, just yesterday. I said, Frank, that's awesome. He says, yeah, I think I'm going to try it again tomorrow. And he began studying the scriptures again. Remember, he had been a pastor. He knew the word. And he began studying the Bible again. And he came in like the next week and he said, you know what? It's been really hard because I, 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 I'm still dealing with this anger towards God, but I'm starting to, to pray to God as well. And as time went on, he began to let me know what God was teaching him. And I remember he came in one day and he said, you know what happened this past week? I realized how bitter I have been towards that pastor friend of mine that I absolutely hated. And I forgave him the other day. Can I tell you this? From that moment on, Frank's countenance completely changed. He it was like he became a different person 
Matthew 18, Jesus says at the very end of that parable, he says this, he says, if you refuse to forgive, I will not, or my Father in heaven will not forgive you. And there had been this barrier between Frank and his heavenly father. And <coughs> he had been estranged from God. And he had been filled with bitterness. And he had been swimming in this cesspool of bitterness until finally God was softening his heart. And he was taking baby steps. And church, baby steps are okay. And he was taking baby steps to this place where finally he came to this place. Instead of having a gun next to his recliner to kill that pastor, he chose to forgive him. And it set him free. He'd been, a cap, he'd been held captive in this sin issue for years. He'd gone back to alcohol. He had stopped the alcohol. And step by step, God was bringing him closer to himself. And you remember the story. He eventually started going to church with his wife. And God had healed Frank's heart heart that was so bitter and angry you, you could see it all over his face truly his face was contorted because of his anger and bitterness it was all gone every time I saw Frank it seemed like he had a smile on his face and I'm thinking wow who is this guy I, I kind of like this and can I ask you when you're challenged to love your enemy, is there something inside of you when you think of a boss or maybe even a spouse or you think of a neighbor or someone else, maybe you think of an incident that's on that list that you wrote down of maybe 10 different things <coughs> that acts as a hurdle and it's love my, even this situation, even this person, really? And there's, there's like this deep challenge in your heart that you have to reconcile and be honest and say, I can't really love them. I'm going to challenge you. Go back to Ephesians 4 and meditate on these truths and remember again the depth of Christ's love for you and the vastness of his forgiveness. And meditate on that truth. How when you were his enemy, when you hated him, he loved you anyway, and he forgave you. And he pulled you out of that cesspool of bitterness and set you free so that you can forgive others and love your enemies. Will you stand with me? God, some of these hurts, even in the last year, if we've not written them down, they're fresh in our minds. They're deep. They have roots that go down into our soul. And God, we are desperately in need of your empowerment right now because we cannot do this on our own. Help me forgive. Help me be able to say you owe me nothing. Father, I, I pray that whatever the devil has deposited in our heart, this hurt, this bitterness, this rage, this anger, this desire to seek revenge and hurt back, and all of this junk that the devil has been depositing, would you right now, as we ask you to forgive us, wash that all away. As we release this person who's hurt us or people who have hurt us, and literally they've slandered us and they've said, and it was so untrue. Help us to forgive. Help me to forgive and release and cancel that debt. They owe me nothing, God. Nothing. Would you now set us free, God?
Wash us clean. Wash this vessel out, God. Empower me right now to forgive with the very forgiveness that Jesus gave me. Do a deep work right now, God, please. Set me free. That I would be able to, in the face of insult and hurt, love. That is my goal. In Jesus' name I pray. bless you guys. Have an awesome, awesome week. If you are wanting prayer right now, could I just encourage you? We would love to pray for you right now. You can just come forward. Others are going to be fellowshipping. Allow us to pray for you right now. Awesome. God bless you. Have a great week. Look forward to seeing you Wednesday night.